Hey everyone, I am happy to be back after a bit of a pause. I have moved to Vermont, specifically Wyndham County, Vermont, and I am getting settled in and loving it here. I have five episodes, including this one, that were recorded while I was living in Chicago, so I will be releasing those over the next few weeks. As you can probably imagine, I am meeting lots of very interesting, intelligent, and creative people here in Vermont, and I cannot wait to share their experiences with you all. I think it's going to be really great, and I can't wait to see where this podcast goes now that I'm living in Vermont. Okay, so let's get going on with the episode. We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McGeckron, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. I remember when I was a little kid in elementary school, the discipline being doled out by my teachers was always to the boys, never to the girls. This was because it was always the boys that were being disruptive and misbehaving. I remember observing this in Miss Sernata's second grade class and thinking, why are the girls not misbehaving? The boys are definitely behaving differently than the girls are behaving. Personally, I was a big behavior problem. I was a nice, kind kid, but I had lots of energy and stuff going inside of me, and it was sort of being released verbally and through connecting with other kids. It was a bit of a problem. I remember in one of my report cards, the teacher saying, Ricky doesn't have a problem with the work or understanding the work, but he insists on putting on an act for the entire classroom. This is like I remember this quote from my report card. Reginald Gibbons teaches at Northwestern University. He has published 11 books of poems, and his novel Sweetbiter won the Annisfield Wolf Book Award and will be reprinted in a new paperback in 2023. I really enjoyed talking to him about his academic experiences as a young boy in Texas and through university. As I spoke to him, I learned that He had a difficult home life that was caused predominantly by his mother. What I found fascinating was how young Reg handled this so differently than how I handled a similar situation. And I think that this has set a foundation for everything that he has become. I am pleased to share my conversation with Reg Gibbons. When we spoke previously... You had said that my life is reading, writing, and piano. So tell me about that life. My artistic and intellectual life. Uh, it's, it's those three things. And it has to do with the fact that my mother's family, my mother's parents immigrated from Eastern Europe. They were Jewish uh, around 1900. And this was a very musical family. It produced uh, professional musicians among my uh, aunts and uncles. And uh, so my grandfather began teaching me the violin when I was five, but I was uh, rather frightened of him. And I didn't want to do that uh, very long. 
And then I, uh, my father bought my mother a piano, a spinet, a little spinet piano, new one, and I began playing the piano. And that turned out to be um, very important in my entire life. When did you start playing the piano? At six. And were you reading music as well? Was that part of it, learning music and music theory? Yes, but, you know, music theory, I don't think I, I did much of that until I was uh, well into my teens. I had several teachers over the years, and the last four years I studied, which was my last four years in public school, I had a, I had a great teacher. Now, when did you, you obviously started reading, I'm assuming when most kids start reading, which is probably around like four or five, six years old? Yeah, I read a lot. And my mother okay. was very good about that. She would go to, uh, there was no public library near where we lived uh, after I was six. We moved out beyond the city limits of Houston. And uh, there was no public library out there. So every once in a while, I'm, my mother would go to the nearest Goodwill store and buy a bunch of books for five cents or ten cents and uh, bring a bag of them home. Some for her, some for me. And... And that continued for a long time. And then, of course, once I got into junior high, there were school libraries. And so you were not the hyperactive ADHD little boy that's running around causing trouble. You are playing piano and reading. Yeah, I, I was, I think, from a young age, a very uh, independent kid. I was self-motivated about what I wanted to do in a lot of ways. And also, my mother was also an enormously controlling person. And I, I began to build an inner psychic structure of safety for myself, uh, I think, when I was still quite small. And there, I, I would go into that space if I had to. So you had to go, that, you had to, go to this space in order to detach yourself from something your mom was doing? To be safe, psychically. Okay. She, she could be quite harsh. Meaning like verbally, what would be considered verbally abusive type situation? Yeah. And physically. My father was, in most ways, a gentle person, but somewhat uh, remote. He was from uh, an Irish, ex uh, Irish extraction family but he also could be frightening sometimes. And in the sixth grade, I had an extraordinary teacher, the greatest teacher I ever had in my life. And um, she was quite an unusual woman. She treated her sixth grade class, and maybe some of us had been picked uh, as being on a kind of track, an upper track. I don't know if they did that sort of thing, but she treated her class, her students, as if we were intelligent, uh, not friends, uh, disciples, maybe followers, mm. you know, she was out to help everybody get where they were going. And she taught everything except math she taught. And, um, she was very ingenious about engaging us in reading and writing and thinking. I think she gave everyone in the room permission very authoritative permission to pursue anything we wanted to to think you know uh, in a fresh way to to allow to allow ourselves to absorb more of the world than probably most kids were aware of 
and um, she was just so um, it she felt so close she was probably the most liberating and in, uh, encouraging teacher that I had in, until I got to high school so there is the music track or musical aspect yeah. but then there's also the reading writing literature mm-hmm. Do you see those two as being closely related? Would you say they're like the same part of your creative brain or are they two different things? I can't, I can't analyze it exactly, but I'm sure that they are. I'm sure that they are related, but I I don't know exactly how that relationship works. What, what happens when I go back and forth between writing and and a piano, for example. But um, a poet friend of mine told me, uh, and surprised me when she told me this years ago, that she thought that there were qualities in my poetry, in the language I used in my poetry, there were qualities which she felt came out of my musical study. And she too was a pianist. She she was actually a a better pianist than I in some ways. But um, I was really interested in hearing that because I hadn't ever put the connection there. I haven't ever found that connection uh, myself. Writing is a lot of problem solving. The problem with solving problems is that most young writers um, don't aren't able to identify what the problem is that they're trying to solve. Do you mean like there's a plot hole or this character isn't fully flushed out, like those types of no. problems or what kind of well, problems? It could be something like that, but more it's more common that um, young writers, they don't all read enough to understand what's possible. And um, because they don't immerse themselves, they don't devote themselves to just mining the, the books that most uh, amaze them, trying to understand how they're constructed and how they're styled and everything else. If you don't spend a lot of time absorbing that, you're only, you're only stalling your own resources from growing. It's impossible to be a writer without reading a vast amount of great work. You'll just never, your language will never and your insight, it just will never be as great as it would have been if you had actually been interested in seeing what the great books are like. How would you say making another language relate to reading and literature? Are they related in any way? Um, I don't think they're related as much to writing my writing fiction as they are to my writing poetry because I've translated poetry from various languages, and uh, everything I've translated has taught me something about what English does as opposed to what Spanish does. You see the, you can see the micro effects, so to speak, when you're reading word by word and you're trying to figure out how to put it into English, not by simply giving the English equivalent word for each Spanish word, but trying to feel how the Spanish thinks. Yeah. Spanish doesn't think like English. English doesn't think like Spanish. And the same is true for all the Romance languages compared to the Germanic languages. So that's just one thing. Yeah. Plus, with um, as a co-translator, I tra- translated in, in the 90s 
both Antigone, uh, Sophocles, Antigone, and Euripides, Bacchae. And um, I learned a huge amount from from uh, going through the ancient Greek. I had started to study Greek in college, but I was too far behind. I didn't have any Latin, and I just, there's no way I could keep up. So I never got I never got classical classics training, but it stayed with me. The uh, some of the intensely compressed qualities of language, uh, and also just the way Greek thinks. It's a real thinking language, and it also, like English, has an amazing number of words for things, mm. and even for uh, things that aren't things. For example, somewhere in the Greek-English lexicon, there's a Greek verb. I can't find it anymore. I lost track of it. Which means, when translated, jumps when pinched. <laughs> there's a verb that means that. It means jumps when pinched. Not when kicked, not when slapped, not when, uh, you know, but when pinched. There's apparently uh, something in the sociality of ancient Greece where people were very physical with each other. And might, as instead of saying, "Oh, you're full of shit," they might just pinch somebody. Right, you know? and that's that's fascinating to anyone who's a poet. One of the things about um, language that is so interesting to me is just what you said: how learning a different language reveals a different way of thinking about the world. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's more the contrast between the way the Romance languages think in a rather abstract way compared to the way English has just got its nose in everything, has a name for everything. And uh, the other languages don't. The other lang In the other languages, what poets call images, visual images, tend to be abstracted. There's a tendency in the Romance languages to use them as abstractions or symbols, whereas in English... If you read Shakespeare, you know, if he if he had wanted to uh, if he wanted to say dirt and fuck and pinch and all that sort of stuff, he you know he could, but you don't say those words in French drama. Nobody says pinch in French drama. <laughs> Nobody says fuck. Nobody ever says in all this classical French drama, you know, and in French poetry, even in the twentieth century, even one of the greatest French trans translators of English who translated William Butler Yeats. And who wrote a book about translating Shakespeare, but explaining how hard it was to do it in French. Even he just completely erased all of the sort of visual, tactile almost images in Yeats's poetry when he translated. He just couldn't find a way to make it sound like a poem that French readers would respect if it didn't sound elevated. And, okay. But, you know, a lot of English language poets get right down in the dirt, like Seamus Heaney, who was a, born a, into a farming family. They know all about dirt and shit, and <laughs> right. you don't that you don't talk about that stuff. And it, people didn't mention those kinds of things. I suspect French poetry now is more open. When did poetry come on your radar? Is that something like you learned in high school? In high school, in high school, and then I took creative writing classes when I was in college, and um, I learned a lot, a lot from those teachers. And then I went to Stanford um, to do a, a master's degree in English and creative writing. And that's where I really was able to be with and talk with and learn from uh, some really terrific fellow students, terrifically uh, um, 
uh, gifted fellow students and faculty. And I wrote much better. When I left uh, Texas to go to college, um, you know, I was a very good student. I, was, I had excellent standardized test scores. I was at near the top of my class. Um, and uh, I applied to a bunch of places outside Texas. My, my safety school was going to be Rice, which is in Houston. Um, but I got into an Ivy League school, and I, and I went. They were trying to uh, diversify, but only geographically, not racially. So you went to Princeton, and was it? I went to Princeton. And um, I have to say that never again after I left Houston was I ever an insider. I was always an outsider. And that probably, although wasn't pleasant, might have been good for me. When you went to New Jersey, you it was all people from the East Coast or Northeast that that you were well, around. Yeah, they had very few. They had it was the. I think my class was the first class in which half of the student body in that cohort was from public schools. You know, the private schools had dominated admittance admissions ah, too. Okay, and so there were there were other people like me there were luckily for me there were quite a few of us who were from what princeton or harvard or yale or any of those places would have regarded as the boonies um but it was a challenge and i liked a challenge and you know and i and i lived up to it but i was ne i could never feel at home there and i have to confess that i've never been to a single college reunion and um it's it's an outsider's uh, awareness, and sometimes I confess sensitivity, overly sen oversensitivity, that I feel has kind of marked my my sense of myself as a writer as well as as a person. Was it the Texas thing, or was it the public school thing? It was both. It was the combination. The social atmosphere. Um, at a place like Princeton, was rather exclusive. And you and, were excluded? And I was not invited, let's say. Um, I, I had Most of the friends I made were people like me, who mm -hmm. had not gone to Exeter or Phillips or Andover or whatever. I'd gone to all these uh, private schools where most of those people went. Um, and some of those people were really dumb too, which startled me. Because, they, but they got in because they were legacy admits or they were, whatever. So I didn't feel intellectually inferior, but I was made to feel, or I felt I was made to feel, quite socially um, inferior. And um, but I had my own circle of friends, and and that was great. That was fine. Um, I was also extricating myself in my college years. I had begun in, in my high school years, but I was in the process, it took years, of extricating myself from my religious formation, which had been fundamentalist Protestant stuff, and um, which I had never liked, although I had been, I had been, um, I had been taken into it, and, and in a way I was taken in, 
But once I was older and able to think more for myself at 19 and 20 and 21, and I took theology courses at Princeton, and there they were rational courses. They were not fanatical. Those were the people I was actually told before I left Houston, the adults I knew in church, told me don't take any religion courses. At a place like Princeton, they'll turn you into an atheist. And I was thinking, this might be a very good plan. Because the hypocrisy of churchgoers, you know, struck me even when I was a kid. You know, I think a lot of people feel uh, an urge for uh, an impulse toward being creative in some way. My mother did, and uh, she wanted to be a commercial artist, as it was called then, but she got TB. She would have been very good at it. Um, she was good at it, but but I, too, you know, was able to actually hold on to that uh, and keep that going. Many writers who begin young just sort of give it up, and many who aren't even really gifted for it pursue it. So it's hard to... It's hard to figure out what the key to that puzzle is, but it's certainly been my key that I have remained, um, um, how can I put it, in, I, I'm, I cannot separate myself from the desire to write. I look at my, my work that I've published so far, and I, I honestly feel that um, it's solid, it's... I discovered some things I, I, I haven't seen other people do. I've seen a lot of other other people's discoveries too, but those discoveries have to match up with your own gifts and your own uh, lacks thereof, with your own abilities and your own interests. And I, I feel looking at everything I've done that I feel um, content. I, I know I'm not, I, I never became a celebrity by any means. Uh, I, ne I never will. You never know what you're on eager to know. So well, you, you never no, know what might happen with this uh, podcast. No, not in America. I think if I'd been in a smaller country, <laughs> um, it, I might have I might have had more readers in proportion to the country. But um, but I'm happy. I, I'm proud of what I've done. I don't feel that any of it is terribly weak. I feel a lot of it's very strong, and I feel that I I carved out. Uh, or I, I blazed a trail for myself that was not a straight line. I, I tried, I wandered, I did many different sorts of things, and I'm still interested in not being repetitious in the, my, 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 my artistic manner as a poet. I'm still trying always to find uh, new things to do. Why do you think you were able to do that? Why do you think you were able to stay on this track? I think that the protective space I built within myself as a child to uh, have a safe uh, a safe place uh, from the harshness of my parents, which wasn't every day, but when it happened, it was pretty awful. Um, I think that gave me a kind of independence uh, of one sort. And then I think my exit from Texas, um, you know, my high school college counselor, when I told him where I was applying to college, just looked at me with a cold face and said, I understand. You think you're too good for Texas. Which was, you know, really an insult. And it was meant to be a put down. Yeah. He was a not a nice guy. But being an being not being an insider 
when I went to an Ivy League school, when I went to California, um, and uh, when I went back to the East Coast and taught for a while, never able to get uh, a continuing job for years, uh, just teaching as an adjunct. Being on the outside, I mean, I'm not as outside as I would have been if I had been uh, uh, an immigrant of color, if I had been a, a born in America but a person of color, if my ethnicity had been a little dubious to all these uh, white people, um, if I had actually known I was Jewish uh, when I was a kid, but I didn't know that and didn't confirm it till I was in my 20s, because that's the way a lot of Jewish immigrant families and second generation were, and third generation even, um, if I hadn't you know, had this sort of outsider position from which to look at everything, I don't think I would have done as well as I have done. Because even though it wasn't pleasant, it was, it allowed me to see things differently than I would have if I had been comfortable inside a kind of culture here or there or anywhere, educational or religious or anything. If I'd been too comfortable, I think, for me, anyway, okay, it, I, I wouldn't have been so good. And I think my out, outsiderness began psychologically when I was small. Yeah, it just took different forms over yeah. my life. When you, I find this scenario when you're a kid that you built this protective shell. Around yeah, a therapist helped. A therapist helped me understand that. I couldn't. I didn't get it by myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you have any idea why you think you were able to use that as your solution, as opposed to other boys who would be acting out? Do you have well, any idea why you did that versus this? This is what's so interesting to me because it I, sounds like that is key to all of this. Yeah. You're, you're right. You put your finger on something really important, which is a lot of boys who are taught their masculinity by the bloody-mindedness or violence or anger of their fathers. You know, a lot of boys then become their fathers. My father had good, good qualities also. Some of them, you know, I like to think I have. But what I was going through was something quite different. I had to find a way to, I mean, I couldn't run away from my family at seven or even 12 or even 15 as my father had done or even 17. Um, I had to find a way to protect myself and give myself an inner space from developing as a person. And that was all intuitive. It was all, it had nothing to do with sort of planning. It was just oh, yeah. because that yeah. was the psychic response, the self-protective, unconscious psychic response. Would so, you say you're lucky then in that in that regard that you were able to, would you? In a somewhat painful way, yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, lucky that that's how you responded. Fascinating. So fascinating. You know, you, a lot of kids, a lot of boys are subject to a lot of the same stuff as you were in terms of music, language, literature. Um, and they don't, they don't consume it. And it well, sounds you know, like, had, it sounds like you were in a space 
for whatever, for the reasons that we talked about, that you engaged with it and you were actually able to stay engaged, you know, you were able to stay focused and you were able to take advantage to everything that was given to you. You know, my high school that um, I grew up outside of Boston and, you know, our school system was fantastic. But we also had kids. I remember my sister had someone that, my sister's 10 years older than me, and she graduated with this kid that graduated and couldn't read. And he, Mm. at graduation, he was bragging about how he fooled them all. You know, he Mm. got out of high school without reading. And I remember my sister saying that it was a kind of, be talking disparagingly about him, but also about our school system. And I was thinking, well, our school system also sent people to Harvard and MIT. So mm-hmm. if you are, if you're able to engage and consume and embrace what the school is able to offer, mm-hmm. you who knows what you could get, or you could ignore it and graduate from high school and not read. So that's kind of mm-hmm. how I see you is that you had this ability to latch on to all of this stuff that was available to you. Well, and also in the example you gave, I mean, a lot of boys are taught by their parents implicitly. It doesn't have to be said aloud that it's good to be stupid. It's good to be opinionated. It's good to be angry. I wasn't uh, taught that way. I wasn't put in that position. And the other thing that was in my favor was that I had good genes for music and literacy. You know, my grandparents from Eastern Europe spoke multiple languages. Mm. And my grandmother, who was, they were both poor. They, they had had a lot of money when they came over, but they lost it all. But they were poor as old people. And um, my grandmother survived by giving private language lessons and translating medical articles from German into English for doctors in Houston. This was back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. So I had genes for music from that family and for literacy and a little bit for language, but nothing like they had. Well, thank you so much for um, for hanging out with me today. This was I definitely enjoyed this, and I think that this was. I think people listening to this will find it very interesting and um, helpful. I think it's a. Uh, I think you ex- you shared a part of your development that I think people could potentially learn from and and see something of themselves in it. Reg, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was great getting to know you. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast.